Today's guest is one of my favorite people in the entire world. I have known her for five years. She is a founder of Spark Deacon, the entrepreneurship program that I manage at Deakin University. And she's also one of the top 15 women in the world when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning. And she's the only woman from Australia on that list. She's the co-director of A Squared I Squared, the Applied Artificial Intelligence Institute, and an Alfred Deakin professor. Her research has led to 346 publications and two spin-off startup companies, iSatana and Toby Autism Therapy. After being told that women weren't allowed to study mathematics at her local college in Jaipur in India, Sveta decided she would be stubborn and not pursue education at all if she wasn't allowed to study what she wanted to study. But her father pushed for her to go to IIT Roorkee, where she was one of only four women pursuing engineering. She ended up coming first in the entire university, which not everyone was happy about. And then she went on to IIT Delhi. Sveta's spin-off company, Isatana, recently raised $7 million funding. It's based on intelligent video surveillance to find anomalies in video data. And we talk about the beginning of this startup and how it started with solving the problem after the London bombings, asking if the bomber got off the bus and uh, the security uh, people not having the answer to that question. So her team built algorithms to be able to look at video data and determine these questions when time is of the essence. She's filed nine patents and been awarded the prestigious 2017 Australian Laureate Fellowship for her contribution to the use of, okay, this is a mouthful, <laughs> the use of patent recognition and experimental complexity, which she received a further $3 million of funding for. And this underpins scientific innovation in Australia. On top of all of this, she has raised a genius child, literally a genius, who took home the Fields Medal in 2018, which is practically the Nobel Prize in mathematics awarded every four years only to three to four people who are under 40 years of age. And I think only two Australians have ever received that award, and one is Akshay Vankatesh, Sweta's son. In this interview, we talk about the behind the scenes. We leave no stone unturned, starting from her university years, her activism, uh, to migrating to Australia, to getting married while at university. And I'm really thrilled about this podcast because believe it or not, it's actually Sveta's very first podcast interview. So I'm so honored to be the person that gets to interview her. I'm also very surprised how one of the top 15 women in the world in AI hasn't been interviewed before this on a podcast. I know Sveta prefers to spend her time in her lab coming up with inventions and being the scientist and mathematician that she is. And I am excited that today she spared an hour of her time so we can go into her life and learn more about the way she thinks. The biggest thing that came up here for me with Sveta is the resilience she has. And in the face of a lot of, I'd say, discrimination, I don't know, Sveta would call it that, she has persevered. She has focused on being the best in her space and she has succeeded in that but it was not without difficult times. So we do acknowledge these experiences throughout this interview and go through what it was like to live in a time where women weren't allowed to study mathematics as a major at university and the sort of protests she put up personally around this. So I think Sveta is a true pioneer and with no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Sveta Venkatesh.
All right. So to start with, I guess what I want to learn about is what were you like during your university years? All right. <laughs> Tell me what about was I like during my university years. I was a very square girl who studied in my university years. But at the same time, I wanted to do all these things that were kind of super crazy. So I finished my school and um, I wanted to actually study physics. But to study physics, I'd have to go to um, this college in Delhi. We were in a different place at that time. And uh, in my time, it was full of drugs. And, you know, there's lots of stuff going on in these universities in Delhi. So my parents wouldn't let me go. So I decided that I'm not going to study at all. So I told my dad, I'm not studying at all. This is after high school or after university? This is after high school. Okay, yeah. So I told him that. Then he says, okay, go to the local college. And uh, so I went to the local college and I said, I want to do physics and maths. Where was that? And, uh, in, in Jaipur, mm-hmm. in India. And they separated the girls and the boys. So the girls had to go to Maharani Gaitri Devi School and the boys had to go to Maharaja something school. And the physics was taught for girls, but the maths was taught only for boys. So I, I put up a petition that I want to go to the boys' school to learn maths and they said no. Then I sort of spent this one year doing this nonsense and learning French and, you know, just talking to all my friends who are very Marxist. And then I told my dad I'm not studying anymore. So what my dad did, um, and this is a true story, he wrote my marks on a piece of paper and he wrote a letter to what was then the University of Rurki, which is now IIT Rurki, because you have to give an entrance exam to get to this. And he said, my daughter's come first in the state of Rajasthan. Would you admit her? And they sent back a telegram saying she's admitted. And so that's how I got admission. I, I didn't even write the entrance exam. And he said to me, look, I've got you, a, your, this university says they'll admit you for engineering. Do you want to have a go? So I hadn't actually planned anything, as you can see, because I had only one thing, and that was to do physics. In retrospect, I think it was good I didn't do physics because, you know, I think that it was very hard. I, I probably have done better in, in the, what I actually did. So it turned out to be good. And then I went to Rurki, which is now IIT Rurki. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very interesting, actually, because um, for, so, so we were four girls among, um, I think, thousands of boys. And um, it was very interesting. I, I, I don't think I had a good time, I would say, because it was very, um, I would say, uh, discriminatory towards girls at that time. And... Um, and I think the problem was that I didn't even know that discrimination is wrong. I thought this is the way it is. But I was. But if I could have left, I would have left. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know where else I could go. So I just stuck with it for four years and finished my engineering. And I came, I sort of came the top of the whole university. Yeah. But then it, I, I didn't have a good experience, I would say, in those years. But then I went to IIT mm-hmm. Delhi and there it was wonderful. And, and I had a really, really good time in IIT Delhi and I learned a lot of stuff, made some good friends. So that's, I think, where everything started mm-hmm. for me. So I have a question. I think often I hear that adversity and loss builds character or it builds resilience. Do you think that's true for you? Because it sounds like you went through a lot. Do you think there was any, how has that affected who you are as a person? I actually think it affected in more than one way. We were we were four girls or four or five girls who started engineering, and there was three of us in electrical engineering. And it was so hard at that time. I mean, just coping socially, not the not the curriculum. This would have been in the. This would have been in nineteen. 
Let me tell you, uh, 1972, 73. Okay, yeah. Really old. Like yeah, I was born in 94. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 20 years before you were born even, right? So you can't imagine those stunts. But there was a girl in my class, and I still feel very bad about this, and she couldn't cope. She couldn't cope with this kind of bullying and this kind of thing that was going on. And, and she was one of those girls who was what was called a merit scholar. So she had actually written an exam and she got a scholarship to come there. She was from a poor family and she just couldn't cope. And she, she actually dropped out after mm-hmm. three months. And I still feel bad to this day that I actually, I didn't know what was going on and I didn't actually help her. And I still feel bad that I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I think we survived, but mostly I think we survived because we had no sense of our rights. Yeah. Because I just thought this is the way the world is. You just cope or you or you don't. And uh, so that's how we started. So that's why when I see some of the things that are happening today, they pale into insignificance sometimes to me. So you think, uh, so this is this is where we've been talking, my, my, uh, my, lobbying against this uh, offensive cartoon to you is, is sort of more insignificant compared to the things that you guys went no, through. No, 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 no. It is not insignificant because it is a completely, uh, I completely share your outrage. And the only thing was that in those days they would act out that whatever feeling they had to you rather than just a cartoon in a newspaper. They're different, right? It's, it, it personally affects you. Yeah. And I'm sure this personally affects many people too, right? Because they face racism in their work or whatever yeah. it is, but sexism in their work. But yeah. Yeah, wow. But anyway, I, I'm just saying that it sort of made us who, who we are. If you had, a, while you were at university, while you are being bullied, do you think if you had have dropped out, do you think your family would have been like, okay, or was there this pressure as well? Were you, what were your parents like? Did they want you, like obviously your dad wrote to them to help you get in because they wouldn't, because well, they wouldn't accept women at that time? Or was that because? No, because I, I, no, it was me because I didn't write the entrance exam. I told my dad I'm not studying anymore. It was just me oh. being stubborn. Oh, you went, you told him you weren't studying anymore because they wouldn't let women into the program you want to study, right? No, that was a program I wanted to study. Yeah. But I never knew there was this other engineering thing. Ah. Engineering thing, you okay. actually have to write an exam in India, which yeah. I never prepared for and I never wrote. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my dad had to find some way so that I would go to um, university, right? But your, so, your your stubbornness not to study came from the fact that you were not allowed to study something you wanted to study. To do right? what I want, to do what I want, yeah, yeah. essentially. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But then my mother was very clear on my options. And that was those were the only options in the 1970s. She says, you can be a doctor, an engineer, or a ditch digger. So I thought, don't want to be a doctor. And I think, let me just try engineering. <laughs> okay, okay. And so what, I would say my life is not very planned out. And so tell me, when you went to university in Delhi, which university, sorry, were you there in Delhi? In Delhi, IIT Delhi. IIT Delhi. Tell me what you were like at IIT Delhi, did you get involved? Or like we just, before we started this podcast, you talked a little bit about, you know, activism on campus and you said we were way more political and involved, you know, than your generation. And I, I see that a lot, you know, so I want to know what were you like at IIT Delhi? Well, I, I stopped being an activist the moment I went to engineering school. This was in my Maharani Gayatri Devi days when I did my first year of university. And because we had a, um, we had like a, a mixed cohort of people. We had scientists, we had artists, we had different types of people together, right? And so m- many of the people who I was friends with were really from the art side. And, you know, we used to sit down and read Camus and stuff like that and discuss things. And um, the world was going to be equal and just. And we had all these ideas, right? But once I went to university, um, it just got 
uh, taken out of me. Rurki, I don't know whether you know where Rurki is, but Rurki is in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's a small place. Um, there's no activism. There's just like, there's engineering students, right? And um, so it just got stamped out of me. And by the time I came to IIT Delhi, um, I think it was the engineering that kind of stamped out that that part of me. But I always stayed in touch with my friends who are who went on to become, you know, like um, social um, uh, social. Not not uh, they they studied things like um, cultural sciences and became cultural studies professors. And through them, I was kind of trying to do something, which of course I was not able to do. But yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so then tell me what happened at your IIT Delhi days. Like, what did you do while you were there at engineering school? Um, what were some pivotal experiences for you? So, IIT Delhi, um, I got married in the middle. How old were you? I was 21. We've joked about when you said, I was practically a child bride, Daisy. <laughs> We talk about this. I'm 26 and I talk about marriage with you and you're like, you guys have it. You can get married whenever you want. This is good. And you said I had to get married. Yeah. So what was that marriage process? Like what, did you want to get married or was it a, a cultural thing? How did that work? It, it, it was a cultural thing. I, and uh, in the sense that, you know, yeah, there was a lot of, like that's what everyone did, right, in India at that time. And so, yeah. So um, it was like semi-arranged, but in the sense that we, I got introduced and we could sort of meet each other and talk to each other and so on and so forth. And then we got married. I, I literally, I think I had to go to Hyderabad and I took one day off to go there, got married and then came back. So that was kind of interesting. It wasn't a big, fat, typical Indian wedding. <laughs> typical. No, no, we didn't have a... No. The, the weddings were not very big there. Okay. That, this is a modern thing. Oh, they really? Had, so like, weddings were not big back then? no. And it was very different from the modern weddings, which are subcontracted out to people, right? Yeah. They're your relatives. It was like a do-it-yourself wedding. Like people would help you with stuff. Like yeah. People would do flowers and this oh, and that. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, it was very sweet. I, I would say those weddings were very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Where everyone in the community comes in to help you yeah, get married everyone. as opposed to you just spending so much money and incurring yeah. debt nowadays, I think. Yeah. That's another hot topic. Yeah. My father's help. Wow. So you took one day off from university to go get married and then you went back. And then I went back. What about your husband? What about your new husband? What did he do? <laughs> right. He was he was actually in a place called Batinda because he was working in My Indian sister Indian. is born in Batinda. We are from we lived oh, in Batinda. Really? We had a house yeah, in Batinda. Yeah. In Punjab. Project that he was there. Mm. But then he was going to come back to Delhi. So till he came back, I kind of stayed a little bit in the hostel. And then we got a house in, 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 in we got our first house, which is called a Barsati. I don't know whether you know about these houses in Delhi. They're like on the roof and they're just like one room and one bathroom and as a little kitchen. It's, it's right on the top floor. So in Delhi, in, in, nobody likes Barsatis because they're like so hot. In, yeah. In, in, in summer. Yeah. So that was our first house, but wow. we were very happy with it. Amazing. So, and, um, and then after, so the, so you get married, you're 21, you're at university. So what else happens at university or I guess straight after university? So straight after university, let me think. Um, I got a couple of jobs. Um, there's a very, very big Indian company called TCS. Consulting. I got a job yeah. there. You know them? Yes. Yeah. I, know I got them. a job in that and I also got a job in this international company called International Computers Limited. Mm-hmm. So that was in Delhi. So I decided to take that, that job up. So I took that job and um, and I think I worked there for about five years. It was very interesting working there and it's so different from what 
uh, jobs are like nowadays. Like there was no training. Like I've never seen a mainframe computer. I've done electrical engineering. I've never even seen a computer. And um, and then they, I'm supposed to be this computer engineer who fixes things. So I actually knew nothing. So it was. I found it very distressing a little bit that um, that they wouldn't. Uh, they, there was no kind of. Um, uh, emphasis on knowledge, if you like, and learn things. But anyway, so that period, I don't think I learned anything. Then Akshay was born in, when I was 26, I think. And then we decided to come to Australia when he was like two years old. So immediately after that. But so, so wait, wait. So how, how old? So how old were you? How long had you worked in India before you came to Australia? Five years in ICL. So you were about 28? Yeah. When we came to Australia, I was 28. Yeah. 28. Okay. And, and, 28. and by this time, Akshay, was, your son was, you'd already had your son. Yeah, he was two years old. He was two years old. Mm-hmm. And when we came to Australia, um, there was this migrant centre. <laughs> tell me about that. Where, tell me, so, why did you decide Australia? And tell yeah. me about that journey of I migrating was, here because yeah. there's such okay, so interesting don't stuff. That I, the activism was still in the back of our heads, in my head and my husband's head. So we we decided we're going to not go to the US because we're going to change India, right? So when we started working, we had all these ideals that we would change something. But this, remember, is before all these uh, uh, rules changed yeah. on, you know, liberalization and things. It was really hard. Like you go to the, uh, these were the kind of government offices. You go to the office to get your passport stamped and he'll say, you got too many foreign stamps. And then you think, seriously? Anyway, so what we found, what we found was we couldn't do anything. We couldn't budge anything. So then we decided, okay, let's get out of the country and then maybe we'll do something in India from outside. So that's why we went, we stayed. That's why we stayed for five years. Others would have gone immediately. Yeah. And um, But the problem was that uh, my husband had already worked for, I think, eight years or nine years by that time. And if we went to the US, we'd have to go as students. Mm-hmm. But if we came to Australia, we could come as professionals who could work so we just came to um, Australia and they told us at the what do you call interview that we have to go to this place called Perth because they're trying to populate that is where my parents were told to go to first they went to Perth in 99 that was in that would have been in yeah that would have been in 92 they went to Perth first that's where they first came to Australia because everyone had to go to Perth Yeah, yeah, everyone had to go to Perth. So we went to Perth. But it was, they, were, they were really lovely. They picked us up from the, host, uh, from the airport and took us to this migrant centers where they would give you, like there'd be a dining hall and you could stay there and you could learn English and things like that. But because we were vegetarian, I said to them, look, I'm having trouble. They, of course, there was no vegetarian food. So I said, would it be possible for us to have a little flat or something somewhere? So they found us what's called a migrant flat. Um, in Fremantle. They, and this is still a, one of the most fondest things I remember because there was us and the Mexicans or, or somebody from South America anyway, couldn't speak English. So we didn't know exactly where they were from. So there was there was like three in, sort of Indian families, one Sri Lankan family and all these people from South Asia. And of course, the all the, uh, the people who came from India were like us, like, you know, they were doctors, engineers or something. And so we got jobs fairly fast. But the, the people from South America were learning English, but there was so much support. There was support like, you know, you could, they would teach you English. There, were, there was this migrant center. In fact, we could go to this place called Migrant Center and write your, because we didn't have computers of our own, right? So you could go to this migrant center and you could write your job applications and a person would help you. I think all those things are gone now. You think so? But they were there before. Or, the, or you think they're available now, but they're not, it's not as clear that they're there and people are confused by the mix of different services and someone yeah. can, and the, I found in the system is that people just keep referring you somewhere else till you just, 
and they provide a referral yeah. service. And it's like, I don't need to be referred to 10 different companies. I just need someone to help me. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite stories in that uh, migrant center was um, the first Friday, I think we came on a Wednesday or something. So the Friday, the person from social security came and, he, and we had to go and see him. And he said to me, um, um, you know, I said, he says to me that he's, he's going to give us the doll. And I said, what is the doll? And he says, oh, it's this money that we give you per week till you get a job. And I said, oh, no, no. I said to him, you don't need to give us that money because on Monday I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a job. So I don't need, I don't need doll. doll. And he says, how much money do you have? And I kid you not, we had $300 and a child, right? Yeah. So he said, I said, $300. And he goes, lady, you need the doll. So he gave us the doll, right? And I was so embarrassed. On Monday, I went out and I got my job. And the next Friday, I went back to him and I said, you can have your doll card back. So you're the first one who's ever returned this so fast. Wow. Why, I'm curious, why did you have such strong views against the doll, which is now Centrelink? Why? Why were you? Why is there such pride? I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I just grown up with the fact that you have to do something. But I said, "What do I have to do?" And he goes, "Nothing." And I said, "What do you mean, nothing?" And okay. I said, "No." It was like I don't know. It just didn't sound right to me. But it didn't feel like to you that it was like a baseline to help you get to get a job. No, I believe. So this is this is coming from my. Remember what I I, I faced in college, right? I'm yes. like, no one. I don't need your help. I can do this on my own. Yeah, okay. So you have I this... hadn't failed yet, right? Yeah. I haven't failed yet. I haven't even gone to get my first job. So, you, so you... he doesn't know whether I'm going to get my job or not. But you, you were very confident in your abilities because you, you knew. Yeah, stupidly confident, but yes. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I, I think I think there's a place for the doll in Centrelink and I think it, it forms a bridge because I know if I share a bit about myself. Sure, sure. Yeah, I grew, I grew up. I grew up and I think that was my lifeline to independence, to get away from, you know, situations at home, sure. right? Because I didn't have that sure. sort of family situation. But I, I had this confidence and I'm sure it was misplaced. Yeah that I'm going to get a job. Mm. I think now it's like, I knew I'd get a job, but my first job was like $10 cash in hand. That was not going to pay me much, right? I was, no, sorry, my first, first job, 14, was Wendy's ice cream at uh, $8. And then I, up until 16-ish, I probably only worked for $10. And that doesn't get you far when the rising prices of everything increase, right? So I think over time. This was much later, right? But in in this early time, I think my, I can't remember, but it was like $25 an hour or something for my programming, mm-hmm. something like that. So I thought that, oh, that's easy. I can do this. And that's quite, re- that's quite reasonable in the, what was it, the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. I thought it was yeah. fine. Yeah. Uh, but he wouldn't give me like, he would just give me like, um, like, um, what do they call Ali rates? He wouldn't give me like a proper job, but I didn't care. Mm-hmm. And he would come every morning and he'd give me, um, a specification of a program to write. And I'd done, I'd do it in like an hour. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I said to him, and he don't come back till the next day. So I said to him, look, you can give me like a couple more. He said, no, 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 this is fine. Just one. <laughs> so I had to just do one. What, com- what company was this then? This was the same company, okay. ICL, International uh, Computers Limited. It was here as well okay. at that time. It doesn't, ex- I, I don't know whether, I don't think it exists anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. You'd probably be their best former staff ever. <laughs> No, I was sort of a casual, whatever they called it, okay. yeah, staff, yeah, yeah. But he only gave you like one project a day. And then he went to Karata because my husband took some time to get a job because he he was much more qualified than me. I had like no qualifications in the sense that I'd done my engineering and then I was pretty versatile. I could do anything. And he had done a project management. He had to get into the oil and gas industry and all that. So that took a bit of time. Then we went to Karata. Where's that? 
Exactly. Where's that? I, I mean, I ended up I ended up in Griffith, New South Wales, a countryside town, like eight hours from Sydney and seven hours from Melbourne. <laughs> but where's Karata? Karata is uh, I don't know how many miles, maybe three or four thousand miles north of Perth. It's in the Pilbara, mm-hmm. and it's in the middle of um, middle of the red dirt where they mine iron ore and oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's a town. Woodside Offshore Petroleum is the place that was was uh, taking out the petroleum there that my husband worked for. So we we had a very nice house that they gave us. But it was like a petroleum town, right? So we went there and I've come from Delhi, remember? 20 million people. And there's like 3,000 people. I'm like, where are all the people in this place? It was a bit of a shock to my system. And when you went to the supermarket, everybody, you knew the person behind you, which was like a shock to me. So it was kind of interesting. Um, I didn't work there. So actually it was very small and, we just kind of did stuff together for about one and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then then Venki got tra- transferred back to Perth and then I came back to Perth. Okay. So that's, okay. The, that's how what, I learned. What were some cultural things you noticed when you first came to Australia in these early years at Karata or in Perth? What were some things that you noticed here that were a bit, that you had to adjust yourself for? Well, I didn't understand even the most basic things. I mean, everything was very baffling to me. So the first time we landed in the migrant center, I had to go to the shop to buy something, which was just across the street. And I took for a long time to come back. So when, when I came back, Wink said, why did you take so long? I said, I don't know. I went across and this road had all these signs saying no standing, no standing. I don't know where I was supposed to cross. So my beginnings are very poor, Daisy. Very poor. <laughs> so wait, wait, the way the sign said no standing and you you were in a car or you were on the ground. You know, it's, it's for the cars, right? Yeah. No standing. But yeah. I couldn't discriminate that there were pedestrians or cars, right? <laughs> so you thought wherever it said no standing, you were not meant to be there. <laughs> Yeah, so it took a long time to cross the road, right? So, so I started from that, and then I remember I used to wear saris in India to work. Yeah, and here I had to wear like Western clothes, and that was completely baffling. For some time, I did some research on what is the length of the skirt, and I couldn't figure it out. Then I said, "Where is the slit supposed to go?" And I couldn't figure it out. There didn't seem to be any pattern. Well, you, but you didn't just go to a shop and buy the skirts, and um, eventually, that's what I just did. Mm-hmm. But I was always uncomfortable about it for some time. And then one of my friends then started to help me, which I found, I I don't know why I got validated by her helping me, but that was really useful. And that's why that's one of the things I feel we should do when people come from a culture which wears different type of clothes. It's actually quite baffling to change the type of clothes you wear. And so I think, you know, giving some kind of help in that would be would be good, I think. But my, my question now is, I guess, fast forward, like, you know, I, I'm probably 30, 40 years younger than you. I think, should we have to change what they wear is my question. I, so, I, so remember, remember, um, it's a question, you, you don't. I mean, technically. Now you don't. Now we accept people, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. If I turned up to my board meeting wearing my clothes, I'm not sure how much yeah. acceptance you really get. So what I'm trying to say is there would be just another barrier, right? Yeah. You already have many that yeah. you have to cross. And so I just felt this was not a barrier that I, I needed to have, right? It was an easy one for me to do, an easy one for me to get yeah. get used to. Okay. Yeah. So there was the clothing, there was just simple things like no standing signs or you didn't know what else was yeah. like some interesting stories or some where you the culture was like a surprise to you. Yeah, and then uh, and then slowly, um, so th- then we also took some time to make friends, right? And so but I think by that time we were back in, in Perth 
and um, and the, my son started going to Scotch College at the time, and um, and then we had this year one. T- he didn't want to go to school, right? So he this was he absolutely didn't want to go to school. He just wanted to stay at home with me. And that was when he was so, how old was he? Sorry, six. Six, yeah. So uh, he had a teacher called Mrs. Hollingsworth. And Mrs. Hollingsworth um, was very nice and tried to make him stay at school. So one day he said to her, uh, she said, you're going to stop crying. And he'd cry not for like two minutes. He'd cry like till lunchtime. So um, this is not like a little bit of distress. It's a lot of distress. So then she said, look, you've got to stop crying because I have to teach you how to, how to count from one to ten. So she said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Then you keep adding one. Then you get to infinity. And this is what infinity is. And he explained infinity to her. And then he says, can I cry now? And then, <laughs> so she called me up after the school and she says, why does he know about infinity? And I'm like, um, I don't know why he knows about infinity, but maybe I told him something about it. I don't know. So she was like, oh, gosh, this kid has really got a stupid mother. Uh, so it turns out that Akshay was very interested in numbers, as you know, and had mm. a different path. But she turned out to be one of the best, wonderful people I met. And she she also helped me in many ways. She was one of my dress colleagues, if you like. If I had to go to a special thing, I would ask her. And she was Akshay's second mom and kept looked after wow. him. So that was a very nice story with her. Yeah. So that's amazing. So what after this, so you're, you've, you've had Akshay, Akshay's about six years old, he's going to school and you're working at um, that same company or you've, oh, sorry, no, 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 you, you no. took time no, off, no. sorry, you took time off to be, to spend time with Akshay and raise him. And then after the, no, what happened No, I joined after that? university, right? I joined, I got two jobs in, in Curtin University. I hadn't got a PhD, but I got two jobs as a lecturer in the computer science department and a lecturer in electrical engineering because I'd done microwaves and radar, right? Mm-hmm. So I just thought, I'd never touched a computer. I just thought I'd do computer science. So I said, fine, I'll join the computer science department. But I had to also do a PhD. So I joined my PhD part-time at UWA. I had a six-year-old child and I was teaching full-time um, computer science, which about which I know nothing. In fact, I was a bit arrogant, actually. The first time, the first course that I wanted to teach uh, was supposed to be on this thing called, um, um, it, it's really about the theory of computer science, theory of computation it's called. I'd never done it, first of all. I'd never read about it. But then I had this view that it would, how hard could it be, right? So I remember one week before looking at it, I had never even heard the terminology. I'd never heard of Turing machines. I'd never even heard this. And I'm like, I am dead. So I was really dead. I was only one week ahead of the class, but I told the class that this is how much I know. I only know this much. And you tell me your questions every week and I'll answer them the next week. I can't answer them on the spot. So this is how I did my first course. Yeah, wow. But it was very good to be honest because they always said to me that, that, I taught really well because I was so dedicated to finding out what the answers were. I think that's actually, you know what's interesting as well? I read this, um, Teachable is a new platform where you can, like, anyone can go online and create courses, right? And I, I keep, as you know, up to date with a lot of these startup trends and ed tech trends. And I did. I went to their summit last year online. It was brilliant. And one of the things they said, which was really fascinating, actually, Sveta, was um, that we learn better off people who have just learned something than off people who have learned it for 10, 20 years and are experts. I'm a proof of that. Yeah, and and you know why? I always thought well, this this really helped me with my confidence because I thought 
people kept asking me to teach them things. I'm like, who am I to teach you this? I've just learned it. But then I realized, they said, they said, people who have just learned something are way better at empathizing with a beginner than someone who's established and say, I'm 20 years of my research is in entrepreneurship and all, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years. I no longer have the, it's much more difficult for me to have the ability to empathize with a, a beginner, right? Absolutely. And you're, you, that's exactly what you're demonstrating, that you were able to teach and teach a well and yep. you'd learn and teach. Yep. But that would mean you're, empath- you're empathizing with them really well. But I think this holds a lot of people back, but I'm glad, like, it didn't hold you back. <laughs> no, it didn't hold me back. No, I just said, you know, all you had to do was be honest, right? Like, mm-hmm. you just had to tell them that you, you didn't know much more than them, really. Mm-hmm. I just knew that much about the lecture that, that I was telling them. I didn't know more, right? Yeah. I just knew that much. And I told them that I only know that much. I never pretended to know more than I... You know, mm-hmm. I think that's what annoys people when people pretend to know things that they don't know. So mm-hmm. I never pretended. Just that sort of honesty, yeah. So you taught, and how long did you teach at um, UW? Oh, you did your yeah. PhD at UWA. So I was at Curtin for a long time, actually. Curtin and um, UWA. I was there till almost 10 years ago, right? So mm-hmm. almost about 25 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't teach, for, uh, continue to teach for long. So what happened was um, I taught, I think, for about 10 years or something, something I love like that's that. not that's not long in your world in my world six I'm months is half my life uh, when you're 26 <laughs> yeah 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 that's right you're only 26 but yeah I thought as much as you've lived yes <laughs> <laughs> but but then I uh, I decided and then I became head of school yeah and when I became head of school wait wait, wait stop uh, slow down you don't just become head of school Tell me that right. journey. How does one just become a head of school? You just say it like, oh, yeah, and then I just became the prime minister and then I just, you know, went to Mars and then I, I created a company like Elon Musk and, you know, now we're on, we're on Jupiter. <laughs> Tell me, how did you become head of school? Okay, so um, so it was interesting, right? So this is like very early days. When was this? Like 88 or something like Were that? there many other Indian academic staff there? No. No. There were no, not many women. Remember, this is computer science. None. Okay. All men, me. What about in the university in general? Were there Indian staff in other areas, arts faculty or other faculties? Yeah, there were, I think, but I didn't know them. Okay. Remember, I had no life, right? <laughs> you, you've forgotten this one part, right? I used to drop Akshay off at Scotch by 9, reach my, at about, I think, 8.45, reach my place at about 10 past 9, work like crazy till 3, then go to pick him up. Yeah. And then go home and then do all the stuff at home. So I didn't have any time to say, oh, let's have a coffee. That was yeah. not in my life. Wow. Okay. So you did yeah. all the domestic, you did all the domestic work as well. Yeah, Venky used to help as well. Okay. But, you know, it was not those times where they could do flexi time. So it's not as if he could uh-huh. say, oh, like I'll, I'll be picking up today. That was not possible. Oh, because he didn't have flexible hours for his work. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Fair enough. Um, so, yes, yeah, so how do you get to head of school? How does that progression happen? So slowly, I think. So I was basically just teaching and I did my own research. I started my own little small research group um, because I didn't know how to get funding and how to do all these things. It was very, very, very foreign to me. So I started having some honor students, just some honor students, undergraduate honor students. And I put as much work into my honor students as people put into, I think, PhD students. But they did really well, and I'm still in touch with a lot of them. And then uh, I have asked somebody how you get a grant, and they said, oh, you're going to write this ARC grant. Uh, so I didn't know what to do. So then there was this wonderful um, um, wonderful person called Professor Delata. He was like the... Delata? Uh, DBCR. Huh? Did you say Delata? Delata. Delata, okay. Physicist, yeah. 
And he used to run these seminars on how to write a grant. So I went up to one of his seminars and then he used to run repeat seminars. Uh, and he expected people to come to only one. And so I went to all of them. And then he says, I hope you get a grant so that you can stop coming to my seminars. <laughs> and they were the same so, seminars. <laughs> yeah. And then, okay, actually the first ERC grant I wrote was very interesting. So in those days, the ERC used to go around like in, in person and interview the candidate. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? So they came to Perth. I wrote this grant. I got into the interview stage. And uh, they said, we're coming on this day to interview me. And that day was, remember, we, I had no backup in family and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So if Akshay had school holidays, he'd just come with me. So it was a school holiday and Akshay was with me. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering what to do. So I took him to the interview. <laughs> so Akshay came to my first ARC interview. Mary O'Kane was on the interview cell. You were the first person who brought the child to an interview. I wonder if these, these early exposures were somewhat contributing to him turning out to be a genius child. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that that mm-hmm. happened. And then, um, so I got my first grant and then slowly, you know. Wow. Built up but that's a big deal. The ARC is Australian Research Council is like the holy grail of research funding. Yeah, it was. And I, and I, and I think I was a little bit lucky in being able to crack it fairly early in my career. So, uh, I mean, very early on, I started getting grants and I, you know, and I always had like at least two grants or three grants mm-hmm. at the same time. And so I was always able to build a group which was, about, you know, five or six big. That's all I was aiming for. I love, small. I love this attitude of you as like, okay, I need to get grants. I've worked out the system. I need to get grants to be able to do the research that does this work. Um, where did you get that sort of just that courage and go-getter attitude? Is it coming from the fact that you, again, at u- your uni back in India, you experienced so much that you realise I either have to fight or I, or I don't? No, it's not a fight, right? It's simple logic. You, if I need to eat aloo paratha today, Jay-Z, <laughs> I have to cook the aloo and make the thing, right? I just don't want to have it. No, but the, I'm talking about your inner world, your resilience, your grit, your perseverance. That's not an aloo paranta. No, I think I think most people who grew up in India, like I don't think I'm unusual at all. Uh, you are, but no, no, no. Let me call you up on that. You are very unusual. You do not see this, and this is why I wanted to interview you because. I live in a different generation and there are, you know, people struggle with the motivation, the courage, the grit, the resilience, the ability to have that mental strength to persevere in spite of being bullied, being told that you're not good enough, being told that you're a girl, you know? So you just seem to, this is why I want to get into your mind because I think it's fascinating that you just see these as a matter of process. Yeah, I do it as a matter of process. I don't do it as a matter of... So I think that helps me because if I felt that these people were, you know, these things were being denied to me, right, I think it would have affected me. Whereas I just think of it as a process. I am going to go to this seminar and learn how to write this grant. I am going to write the grant and I'm going to get the grant. So you're, you're, you're very, no, so very action-orientated. No one can stop me in that, right? Yeah. No one can stop me in that. Yeah, so you're very action-orientated. You look at, you try and work out how the system works or how processes yeah. work. You decide, okay, well, I'm going to learn that and I am yeah. too going to get grants and I'm too going yeah. to be part of that. Okay. Yeah, and then okay. I'm going to get my small group, which is what I did, right? And then, uh, and my small group and I used to continue working for some time, by which time I think I was a professor or something. And then at that time, uh, someone had to become head of school. So I was, I asked to become head of school and I took it very seriously. I thought I'm going to really, really improve the education and really, really improve the. Where? Uh, so you just said, yeah, I'll, I want to be head of school. I'll take that position. You were, you were. No, they asked me, and I said, okay, fine, okay, I'll do mm-hmm. it because I think everyone should do it for at least a couple of years. You know, you owe the system that. 
um, which means your research takes a little bit of a backseat, but I was happy with that. And um, so when I became head of school, I, uh, I found it really hard, actually, because I found that in the third year of my being head of school, I was writing the same letters that I was writing in the first year. I, I found that I couldn't really, really change the system. That what, what do you mean you're writing letters? What letters were you writing in the first year that you're writing? So, in the, so third the letters year? you're writing are like, for example, there'd be a quota on how many students you can take in, right? And computer science was booming. I could take double the number of students. And I said, let me take more. And they said, no. So then I'd write for, let me take more. And they'd say, no. And they'd say, let me take more. And they'll still say no. Or they'll give me a small amount. But you see, this is a, um, so they're not as adaptive as the market. Right, mm-hmm. because they have to then take the number of places and give it to everybody. We don't have this system anymore. Obviously, this changed with was the Gillard government. I think this changed, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe they have more flexibility now. They yeah. didn't have much flexibility then. It's not totally their fault, but mm-hmm. uh, okay. you know. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, but then I did a lot. Like we saved a lot of money. Mm-hmm. We had a million dollars uh, wow. saved up in the three years, and uh, you know we had good staff, and uh, we didn't have much research, but th- that's where it was. So when I finished my head of school, I took one decision there. I said, I never want to become a university administrator because I just found it not very uh, satisfying, right? So I thought I have to do something which is satisfying. So I thought, okay, I'll go and do research. So when I finished my head of school, they said, look, uh, you can set up some research center because you've saved all this money for the departments. You can set up something for the department. So that's how I got my first center. Mm-hmm. And um, which was called, <laughs> which is called the Institute of Multi-Sensor Processing and Content Analysis. And as the head of school said, Sweta, you shouldn't put all the words of your work in the title. I kind of didn't get it at that time. <laughs> the center for what? <laughs> Did I have an yeah, acronym? Exactly, exactly. I was small. It was it, it was only like about I think we grew to about. 30 or 40 people, 30 people maybe. Yeah. And uh, during that time, uh, after that time, I did like, you know, only research. And, and actually after my head of school and before I did that, I went for a year to Germany, which because there's this Institute of Advanced Study in Germany, which invites people to come and um, actually I'm supposed to go there and write a book. But I actually did nothing because for the first time I was with scholars who were like, artists and anthropologists and composers and I just found that totally fascinating yeah so this was in Berlin so So you went there to write a book but you did not write the book I didn't write the book but luckily I had written some kind of edited a book uh, like a year before and everyone thought I kind of did it there and I kind of let them think that but I actually didn't do anything there I just saw the museums and (laughs) hung around with the history I I learned a lot was this your first time in Europe or you'd already gone to Europe no, 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 I've been to Europe okay. many times, but it was my first time staying there for so long. Okay. But more importantly, staying there with these cultural anthropologists. Yeah. I'd go to the museum with the art historian. So that's a different perspective on things. Yes, okay. So I found that very interesting. So I learned about, uh, I remember this girl saying, I didn't understand modern art, and she said, you have to engage it with your mind. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, okay. Uh, so I met some very interesting people there. So yeah. that was nice. Do you understand modern art now? <laughs> Uh, no, but I know what I like. Okay. I, I, I can't critique it, but I have a set of people that I really like. And yeah. before that, I didn't have that. Do you have artists you like now? I still like those artists that I like then, like okay. Paul Clay and stuff like that. But I, I, I really like art, the arts. So yeah. I go, for example, to all the exhibitions in Melbourne. And yeah, I, wow. I do like it. And that, I think, 
got back into me when I went to Berlin. Okay, wow. Okay, so then you went to Berlin, you went to write this book, but, you know, you were so fascinated with the arts and these anthropologists and cultural folks, right? So I didn't do that. Okay, yes. and so you've come back and you, anyway, you've got your institute. Um, you've decided yeah. that university administration is not for you, didn't find it. Not for me. N- not for you me. couldn't impact the, it sounds like you couldn't make the change you wanted to make, right? Yeah, you, I you, couldn't do the change I wanted to make in the, in the time that I had. Yeah. yeah, okay. And then you're doing this research institute. So, I guess tell me more about your work and your research at the moment. So how do you become, yeah. which you which you are now, one of the top 15 women in the world in artificial intelligence? And I know you have this funny look on your face because I'm looking at you now and you deny this and you have this humility that I think is a little too much humility. But tell me, how do you get to becoming the top 15 women in the world in artificial intelligence and the only one in Australia on that list? Oh, wow, Daisy, even I'm impressed. Anyway, so what I do... <laughs> I'm your marketer. I've always told this. I'm your chief champion officer. I'm appointed <laughs> to tell people about you because it astounds me this is the first time someone is interviewing you on a podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I was just interested in a lot of stuff. So one of the projects we were doing, um, one of the grants I wrote, actually, the ARC grant I wrote, was called the Inverse Spielberg Problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, okay, so let me take you back into what area we were in. So we were in this area called multimedia, the stuff that you do now so easily you couldn't do before. Yeah. You couldn't do things like searching. You couldn't search. So you you, you, you helped build the systems I use to use Instagram yeah, and LinkedIn. Much, okay. Much <laughs> I use them now for my activism. You built them. <laughs> we, we, we didn't build them, but we researched yeah. the components that became uh, fundamental in these kind of systems, yes. right? In yes. kind of these search that, and indexing systems. That's sort of building too, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. cannot build something without that foundational research, and that is why that yeah. research is important, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, so this area is called multimedia, right? Mm. Because you have audio, video, sound, mm. and all kinds of text, and you want to make some sense out of all that. Mm. And you want machines to make sense automatically. So one of the things you have to try and understand is meaning of, of say, video, right? So if, if you take, uh, so we, we were after understanding what we call the semantics of video so that a machine could watch a video and say, hey, this video is about this. We're still not quite there, but we are there in parts, right? Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> I thought that what I would do is look at film, right? Because film um, is, is actually composed by humans and humans have a, a, a rule in which they convey meaning and if I can reverse engineer that, then I could do it. So I went and studied what's called film grammar. There's a whole science called film grammar. Mm-hmm. And it is the rules that production artists use to produce uh, content, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, Spielberg, if he wants to make um, you think that uh, something is going to go, uh, you know, create tension, he will either decrease the short shot length as he goes mm-hmm. or he'll increase the tempo. So he'll, in, he'll do yeah. a couple of things which are known and it's because we understand the rules of that game, we understand film, yes. right? So we've been trained to understand that grammar, even though nobody actually taught us the grammar, we understand it by mm-hmm. just watching film, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did is we we took film grammar. Uh, I understood what people do in film grammar. I constructed then the equivalent computer science to reverse engineer those components. And then we could take a movie and we could divide it up. Hey, this is the part where... You know, the initial thing happens, this is the resolution, this is the climax. So that was the first time anybody could do it at that higher level of semantics. So that's why we call it the inverse Spielberg problem. Uh, Okay. What problem were you trying to solve in doing that? We wanted to take a movie, right? And you want the machine to tell you that these are the story components. From this portion, um, we are introducing all the characters. 
then the conflict begins and conflict increases here and yeah. the conflict gets resolved here. Like the story, a story has components, right? Wait, so you, you build algorithms or systems that would tell you how the, from the visuals, how that story was happening without exactly. the actual them telling you the story. Oh, I yes. get it. You build algorithms that break down. Okay, yeah. Yes, this makes yeah, sense. Break down the narrative into the narrative elements. And this work would become fundamental to some of the stuff you did later that resulted in, I guess, the company Isatana, right? Right, right. So that's how we learned to play with video audio. But this was a very interesting piece of work. Mm-hmm. And we started this uh, whole field called computational media aesthetics. So yeah. it, it was about how computers can understand media aesthetics, right? So we yeah. started this whole field at that time. And uh, um, anyway, so... How do we see that, that today? So how does someone like mm-hmm. me in 2020, how do we see that play out today on our, on our social media or in our world? How does that play out today? So, so a lot of content is now automatically indexed, right? So especially when you see summary of small clips, it would be automatically done by a machine, right? So this kind of technique that I'm talking yeah. about underlies that. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, and, so- and, 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 it's, and we're very, very far away from getting it totally right because you can't get nuances and stuff like that, but you get to quite a long, long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so tell me about... Obviously, there's a, there's a company that you have contributed to the fundamental research behind, which is now Isatana, and it's a public listed company. But the story, I think, began with after the, was it the London bombings happened or before that? And yeah. they approached you, from what I understand, to ask about a simple question of, did the bomber get off the bus? Yeah, that's And right. that, they couldn't answer that question. So tell no. me about that. Yeah, so uh, we were working with a Perth company at that time, which was installing uh, cameras on the buses in in London. You know those red buses. So they, it was they had a contract to do that, and they told us that when the London bombing happened, um, they wanted to know whether the bomber got off the bus, and they couldn't actually answer the question. In fact, the mum had to call them two weeks later and say, well, "You know, my son's missing or something," for them to figure it out. And it turns out, firstly, there were cameras on the bus. Then there were other buses that were watching, like you could see this bus. So, you know, there were other buses that could see this bus. If all these cameras were working, you should be able to answer the question. But obviously nobody knew, A, the cameras were on the bus. B, nobody was extracting all that video and uh, nobody could answer it, essentially. Mm-hmm. So from that, we started thinking about what can we do in this area of wide area surveillance? And the partner in that grant was Perth Transport Authority at that time. And um, um, and then th- there was a, I just wanted to go and see one of these uh, surveillance, uh, you know, c- control centers. So I just picked some random one and we, I went to this uh, control center and I could see that there were many cameras that were coming into this one room and this guard or a couple of guards were looking at some 10 screens. And I said, but he had 3,000 cameras out there. So I said, how do you know which camera to look at? And he looked at me and he says, of course I know. You know, I'm trying to look for this. But of course he doesn't know, right? Because there's 3,000 cameras. He's got 10 screens. He doesn't know which one he's supposed to be looking at now. But it's his job to say he does know. Yeah, yeah. And he does think he knows, right? I mean, that's what that's what they do think that they know because they know these hotspots. So he would, you know, he would go and look at a hotspot and things like that. But of course, a machine doesn't need to know where the hotspot is. It should be able to find the hotspot. So that's how we started thinking about that research. And um, we made, basically solved that problem by finding a, a solution to that problem, which was, um, you know, how can you, uh, how can a camera look at some footage 
and find the abnormal events that happen in it, which then became uh, the foundation of iStartup. So that's what iSatana does. So it's a startup, more than a startup now because it's listed, right? So tell me, so from what I, if I say it in layman's terms, is iSatana, it's a company that helps you determine sort of um, any risks or things that have gone wrong by looking at video footage and determining with, I think, what is it, 90% accuracy or something where something could have possibly gone wrong without humans having to visually try to exactly. analyze? Exactly. So so the solution in Isatana is that if you're monitoring 3,000 cameras and you have like two or three guards looking at a control center, the um, the screen is just blank. You're not, you don't keep watching footage. When something goes wrong with a camera, it brings it back on the footage. So yeah. it's like an active system of surveillance which yeah. draws your attention to what is not normal. Yeah. And... Tell me about what I want to dig there in is dig deeper in there is how most researchers do research, right? You have also had some success, Isatana and, and Toby Playpad, um, in commercializing, which is uh, you know bringing it to life so it actually impacts people, right? So how how did you navigate that part, that commercialization part? Um, actually, uh, Isatana was not my first startup. I was okay. always interested in doing it. And, we, and I had like, uh, how many failures? I had one failure, I think before that, uh, one or two, one or two, I would say. So the first one we actually did was something called intelligent process operations management, which is how do you go to a BP and, you know, there's lots and lots of thousands of sensors. How can I condense that information and give you some information? But that didn't go anywhere. We tried really hard. I learned a lot of lessons from that. What did you learn? Um, not technical, what did you learn otherwise from how you're thinking about it? So I learned to be agile, actually, because what happened in that company was we had like this huge board that would tell us what to do and we were a giant team and then we would go off. Um, and I'll never forget, we tried to go to the US to try and sell our work and we went to the first company that we had chosen and I, as I, explained, I think I told you once that we were out on the street in five minutes and I said, what happened there? We clearly didn't sell anything. So... Um, So there was a couple of things. Uh, We didn't uh, study the market very well. Um, We didn't study that the competitor was so entrenched in that piece of software that Mm. we would never be able to get anywhere, right? You have to choose your spots. And um, also how to be more agile. So the next one I decided I would have be more agile in in terms. And most importantly, I learned that the CEO was everything. So, you know, I I, I learned that lesson through that. Why is the CEO so important of the companies that you... Because, because as you know, the startup is only about trying to find the business plan that works for that idea, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a, uh, if you don't have a CEO that can actually, you know, pivot and do that kind of stuff, it often, the idea itself is not enough. So if you're, so if you're a researcher and you've got research that can be commercialized into a startup, one of the key things is is appointing the right CEO if you're not going to become that CEO, right? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, exactly. And I actually recommend, I feel that as researchers, that's what we should do. Because I realized when I met Matt McFarlane, how much he knows about the commercial world and about businesses. And mm-hmm. it's a completely different skill, which I don't have. Mm-hmm. And I think researchers have the skill to create new technologies. And I think it's this partnership between a person who knows that part, like we do always, you know, you need different skills to bring it together. And I think it's better that you create it Pass it on, do the next thing, pass it on. I think, right, it depends on your strengths. If as a researcher, your strength is really that research area, it's not, you know, are you going to start learning the whole domain expertise of sales and marketing, right? How can you decide if you thrive in in the research space rather than becoming a CEO of a company that you invented? 
Yeah, because I already had another idea, right? Okay. So I wanted to so you want to go on to the next idea. You don't want to just, okay, I, I see. To the next one. Yeah, okay, yeah. 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 The, and that, I guess that's a luxury you get as a researcher is you get to create them and then you get to create the next thing and the next thing. Whereas if you, yeah. it turns into a company, you have shareholders, you have obligations, you have marketing, exactly. you have staff, you have all exactly. these other things. And I think that's the fun of research is uh-huh. that you can take up area, you can do a body of work, and then you can move to another body of work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. So I think we've only got a little bit of time left. So I want to let you go soon. So I want to ask you a little bit about, I guess, um, so you've obviously done some phenomenal research and all of this. I think, was it in 2009, was it last year that you actually got the Fields Medal? Uh, two years ago. Two years, 2018. I want to ask you about that because I remember when uh, Chris called me up and said, oh, did you hear Sveta's son won the Fields Medal? And I said, ah. Cool. What's that? <laughs> and and he's, it was the same thing when he said, "Oh, did you hear? Sveta got an ARC a laureate ship." And I was like, "What's that?" And he's like, "Daisy, it's the it's the holy grail of research." I'm like, "Oh, oh, oh! I'll call her and say congrats." <laughs> you know, because I, I'll be honest, I'm not a researcher. I'm not an academic. I work in a university, but I work a lot with young people, and you know, looking at the problems they face. And I think I'm more in that space of communication and marketing and sales and understanding yeah. that and how humans behave, right, rather than Whereas yeah. you're in this, how to, how to build systems to solve these problems. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm curious. So two years ago, Akshay got the Fields Medal. What was that like for you as his mother? And tell us, what is the Fields Medal for anyone who doesn't know? A lot of people don't know. <laughs> no, when, when you talk of Holy Grails, that is a Holy Grail. That is a Holy Grail of mathematics. And um, it is awarded once in four years. And you have to be under 40 to get it. So... Yeah for a body of work that you have done. So it's a phenomenal... It's known as the Nobel Prize of Mathematics is what it's known as. It's like the Nobel Prize of Mathematics, yeah. 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 And actually is the second Australian ever to get it, right? Yeah, second Australian to get it. Do you know what was really funny? Can I quickly share something? Is that when the um, news came out, I noticed that Indian news published an Indian man has won the Fields Medal. Australian media said an Australian man has won the Fields Medal. And American, well, like an American man has won the Fields Medal. It's like, yeah, you all want want us now, don't you? (laughs) That's true, actually. And my mother was my mother was really interesting because she doesn't know much about the Fields Medal, but of course she was alive then when he got the Fields Medal, and she said, "I have never been congratulated so many times by anybody before." And then the, her carer says to her, "But your son, your grandson didn't win the Fields Medal before." <laughs> How was that for no, you? It was phenomenal. I mean, it was really phenomenal. I was so happy he got it. And, um, yeah, it was really lovely, one of the best moments of my life. Wow. And he was, obviously, he was a, I mean, he was a bit of a genius child, right? He left Australia yeah. at 16, right, to go yeah, to yeah. university. He yeah. finished university at 16. And yeah. yeah. I think yeah. one of the things when I called you and you said something funny to me, which I'm going to repeat here, <laughs> you said, I... And you said, Daisy, these journalists, they keep calling me. I don't understand. And you said, I said, what do you mean? And he goes, some of them ask such silly questions. And I said, what questions, Sveta? And he said, one asked me today, was he born a genius? And I said, no, he shit, he was shitting, he was pissing, he was a baby. <laughs> do you remember that? You said that to me. And I was like, this is gold. <laughs> oh, I you, that's what you said to me. You're like, of course he was a baby. He wasn't born doing maths. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, I think, I think that's been phenomenal. I think I want to finish off with just one last question for you is I guess to younger folks 
who have interest in STEM, in science, in technology, but also entrepreneurship, because, you know, you dabbled in that. You've started Spark Deacon, obviously, the entrepreneurial program that I, you know, I always say it's your baby. I, I just adopted it. <laughs> um, so but you're a wonderful leader of that, yeah. We, we try. Um, so I wanted to ask you what a kind of, I guess, what do you wish someone had said to your younger self? To 25-year-old Sveta, what did 25-year-old Sveta, what could have 25-year-old Sveta heard that would have, been nice or helpful or encouraging? I think I would have liked to have like a really good mentor my whole life, much older than me, much older than me, who, who's gone through life and perhaps can sort of uh, tone it down sometimes when I thought something was too extreme. You know, tone it down, give perspective, really. So mm-hmm. any, I would have, I think I'd like to have, I've never had such a person as such. So, I mean, I've had for little periods of time, but I think it would have been nice. You know, I hear you, Daisy, talking about one of your mentors, and I think it's wonderful that you have that mentor because I think they give you this kind of perspective that just comes from living. Right? You're one so, of my mentors too. <laughs> huh? You're one of my mentors too. I mean, you're my first sponsor. Yeah, you're mentors, my first sponsor in the university, I'd say. I didn't even know what a sponsor was when you became my sponsor. <laughs> yeah, 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 but I think that's nice. And I, and I uh, try to do that for as many people as I can because mm-hmm. I think that that's something I would have liked to have had. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's amazing. And I always talk a lot about people and how to reach out to mentors, how to connect, because it's not obvious how to do these things, right? And I talk a lot about the importance of like reaching out, connecting and staying in touch with mentors. And sometimes it can be a bit awkward. It's But I think it's like demystifying that process because ultimately what it is is like you find someone who's much further ahead of you, who you share values with, who you share the difference you want to make and the legacy you want to leave. And I think you learn off, off what they've learned as well. And I think you have multiple mentors that help you along the way, right? That's correct. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. But having one, I think, for a long period is, I think, wonderful to have. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. was there anything else that you wanted to share or do you feel like we've covered everything? No, I've never covered so much ground, Daisy. I'm <laughs> curious to see your podcast. Oh, well, I don't think oh, there'll be much editing in this. I think it's all spectacular. But look, thank you so much for your time. This has been brilliant. Um I think where can, one last thing is, where can people find you or if there's anything that you're looking for collaboration or help with right now, what what would that be? They can email me. They can, they can email, you'll respond, or will you forward that email to me? <laughs> yes, I will, I will forward. You keep sending me your emails. Or they can email you. How about that? <laughs> All right. So people can email you. Obviously, you're not on social media. You're on GitHub. You right? You use GitHub? No, no. not really. You don't? Okay, I'm so not on any media. Yeah, yeah. But they can email you or me. Okay. Whichever. All right. There yeah. you go. And what, is there anything at the moment? What are you? What's your biggest priority right now? What are you working on right now? Oh, I'm just working on building uh, interesting AI algorithms right now. Okay. You know, things that make society better, Daisy, you'd mm-hmm. be happy to know. So any companies out there that would utilize AI could also get in touch with you. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah to cool. tap into your genius mind to solve problems <laughs> that they can't seem to solve. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You're so not. Thanks, Daisy. All right. Thank you, Sveta, so much. Thanks, Daisy. All right. Bye.